The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So nice to be to, nice to be together, and nice to be here with you. For those who don't know me, my name is Gabe Keller Flores. I'm the office manager at Common Ground, and one of our Dharma teachers. And I'm filling in for Mark today as he's leading the Labor Day retreat with Shelley. And um, we're just going to pick up where Mark left off. We've been going through the paramis, this list of 10 beautiful qualities, virtues, um, and we're on to truthfulness today. So that's what I'll be speaking about. And um, yeah, it's it was uh, timely. I've been thinking about it um, myself in my own life and practice and um we had a conversation about it at the millennials group that I lead um, last week. And so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot here. Um, even though it can seem simple on the surface. Uh, and the way I'll, I'll share some thoughts on it is dividing into two aspects. One you could say is more external and the other more internal. So truthfulness as a virtue we cultivate in our speech primarily, although I think you could extend that to even energetically, just how we show up. Um, so they're, the, the two are obviously related, but in the most obvious way, being truthful with our speech is a, is a really important training um, in Buddhism. And then the second is truthfulness in our perceptions um, which is really at the core of our mindfulness practice, getting clear, being more real with ourselves and um, being humble about how deluded we are and uh, willing to to learn, to be learners and to see what we're not seeing. And so there's a, a commitment and a value of truthfulness there that really is at the center of our practice So with the first, on the level of speech, um, we can probably all agree that truthfulness is a virtue and it has, um, I'm I'm sure we, we all do our best to be honest with others. And I certainly, um, think of myself as someone who really holds this this value highly. And yet I think one of the reasons I was just reflecting on this in my own life and practice recently is just noticing a lot, in particular in a new relationship. Yeah, just how 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 easy it can be to not be completely truthful and how hard it can be to be truthful. Um, so first let's reflect a little on why, why this is a value. What, what are the benefits of truthfulness in our relationships? And then we'll look a little bit at some of the reasons we, we may not be truthful or why it can be hard to be truthful and look at, yeah, what, you know, just to be, to be real and all in giving this talk, I, I want to be as truthful as I can, obviously as, as a practice. So I'll share a little bit from my experience and maybe it will resonate um, with yours, but looking at some of the 
the benefits of truthfulness, this commitment, this value of truthfulness in our relationships. Um, yeah, I think we could probably all um, reflect on moments at least where even though it may have seemed hard um, to be honest with somebody, maybe about um, something that was difficult to talk about, but then the the relief that can come and sort of the the sense of being, having things out in the open, being on the same page, or even, you know, things that we can be afraid of and imagine. And then once we actually put it on the table, bring it up, you know, it's, it's often not what we fear or what we imagine. So just that value I've been finding, and it's, it's a very gradual process. And I feel very much a beginner in some ways, just of that kind of directness and clarity. And, um, you know, especially when there's something a little bit unpleasant or a little difficult, and it would be easier, you know, to tell a little lie or just to not be completely honest, you know, even something as simple as how are you and how often are we not completely honest? And I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, it's what I've been really interested in is just all these ways that we justify not being honest, not being real and not again to like um, judge that, but just to be interested in it and to be interested in the ways we might justify it kind of unconsciously and assume there's no way that I could be honest in this situation. And maybe, maybe there is, and it just requires some creativity or, um, yeah, just looking at, at how we show up in a real way and what, what that feels like, what the impacts of that are like and what it feels like when we're not showing up in a real way. And yeah, for me, it's very clear when I'm, when I'm honest with myself and when I look at it, even in the really subtle ways, you know, yeah, like again, with that example of someone asking how I am, just the difference between like, just that little move where I really don't want to get into it or, you know, and so it's just fine. And just how it really, there's not a lot of room there for any real connection because, um, yeah, and again, it's not to judge because the heart's just trying to take care of itself. But I've been, yeah, and getting some feedback from from one friend just about how that, that does cut off any um, possibility of connection. And so even if, you know, I'm in a bad mood and I don't want to get into it, well, there's the possibility of at least being real about that and just how that you know, just being real, you know, yeah, I'm in a bad mood and I don't want to talk about it or, you know, however we might express it each in our own way. But for me, it's more an energetic sort of like, no matter how, what's going on. And I think this is really related to the second piece about just um, truthfulness in our perception and sort of truth, the value of truthfulness, the value of being intimate with life, you know, however it is of just like, um, yeah, however it is, for a moment I can show up, recognize, oh, this is how it is, feeling horrible, <laughs> and like, and then somehow not needing to pretend about that or not needing to, 
disguise that and, and, you know, finding what's appropriate in the moment of how to share that, express that, or be real about that. I mean, it, it can even be just like a look or just like, you know, it doesn't even have to be verbal, but some way of like owning that this is the experience and it's not always possible and that's okay. It's not about judging ourselves. I think for me, it's more just this curiosity and this interest about what the actual impact and effects are uh, when we choose um, or the mind chooses kind of habitually to not be honest, to not be real. And how it feels when we, when we are real. So let's look at some of the reasons um, that we might hold back from telling the truth. (laughs) And so I just have a few, and I'm sure there's many more. Um, But I I found this interesting and, and useful to reflect on because I think, like I was saying earlier, that, yeah, we, we, we justify it and maybe we, we don't, we haven't looked that carefully at, at the reasons we justified or what's going on there and that there may, and, you know, not, and to like understand that there's, there's nuance there. Um, I mean, one thing maybe just to start with is the Buddha's guidelines for wise speech and truthfulness is always there. So truthfulness is sort of a non-negotiable, which is interesting because we, again, we may, yeah, we, we often do, I think feel justified in in not telling the truth, even in very subtle ways. But for the Buddha, that was really important. But there was also other factors that made, that makes speech wise speech and skillful speech. So it's not just that it's truthful. And I think that's important because we can also use the truth or what we think of as the truth being truthful. I'm just being really honest with you, but there's, um, but we're doing it to harm, for instance. So that's one of the, the other qualities that's um, expected or that's the the high standard that the Buddha sets out. Um, Let me just find those qualities. Yeah. So it's true. A speech that is truthful, helpful, spoken with the mind of goodwill and spoken at the right time. So there's a lot of factors there. So it's not, you know, this isn't simple. It's not a, you know, it, it requires mindfulness and really being sensitive, you know, to the situation and the person and ourselves and where we're coming from. So I feel like this is such a, a deep and, um, yeah, really, really interesting area for practice and one where we're always going to be making mistakes. So it's, it's not about being perfect, but, but I think these high standards can really inspire us to look, just to be honest and look at our, our speech and, and the impacts that it has. And um, yeah, so we can learn about ourselves and our minds and we can have a better chance of um, having our words land, be received and, and be a cause for connection and understanding. So one of the reasons I think sometimes we're not, um, honest with other people is we we're afraid of hurting somebody. And I think that's an appropriate fear. And um, because our words can cause harm and it's very easy to cause harm with our words, as we all know. 
So, you know, that's why I think the Buddha has those, those high standards and to really reflect before we're about to say something, you know, is this truthful first? Is it helpful? Or am I just, you know, trying to hurt someone or, you know, get my way or be right? Is it spoken with the mind of goodwill? I think that's a really interesting one where it can be true. We can think, oh, yeah, this person really needs to hear that. But when we look at our intention, is it really coming from goodwill or is it coming from wanting to cause harm, put someone in their place? And is this the right time? We may feel a lot of urgency in a moment, but if we're really sensitive, take a moment, you know, tune into where the other person's at. It may not be the right time. And then, you know, maybe we say, you know, do you have time later to talk or go for a walk or something? Um, yeah, but this fear of hurting someone, I think even if we followed all of those high standards, what we say could still cause harm or could still hurt someone, but we're mostly responsible for, you know, our intentions that it's not to cause harm and that we're really checking that. No, this really, this is, um, you know, impacting our relationship. And I feel like it would be helpful to bring it up and it helpful to me and to the other person to know this. And it will probably cause, you know, it will probably hurt because it's maybe an uncomfortable truth. Um, but we all probably know if, if we reflect just on the harm that can co- come from not addressing what needs to be addressed. So I think this is one, one way we can avoid being real with people is, is not wanting to rock the boat, um, to hurt, hurt someone else. But I think we can sort of take refuge in our intentions and, and to really check them that, you know, I'm doing this out of as best I can, as best I can tell good intentions. And so even though it may hurt, you know, I'm going to be here in a compassionate way for the conversation, for what unfolds. And so we don't have to avoid, even though, yeah, it's, it's hard, but we don't have to avoid what can really be causes for healing and repair and, and deeper understanding when we, when we can talk about, um, things that might be difficult or uncomfortable. <clears throat> and then another reason we may not be completely honest, <laughs> this is one I think I've noticed a lot recently, is not wanting to reveal the less agreeable aspects of our personality or really reveal what's going on for us. Um, yeah, like in the example of how are you and, you know, yeah. We all want to, at least I have the conditioning of wanting to always be happy, <laughs> positive. And yeah, just to be real. No, I'm not feeling well, feeling down. And then so just that vulnerability or whatever it might be or, you know, revealing all the, yeah, if we really, you know, we're honest in different moments with people, it takes a lot of vulnerability and, and trust know, to reveal in our closer relationships, you know, what really goes on, um, you know, the pettiness, the anger. But I think, yeah, this is the basis for, for trust um, and intimacy where we can, 
where we can reveal, you know, that we are a conditioned, imperfect being. And, and I think this goes hand in hand with our own understanding and perception of, of the conditioning of our minds, you know, where we over time with mindfulness practice, see our minds more clearly, see everything that's there, the beautiful qualities and the, the unskillful qualities and over time, take it less personally because we understand that it's conditioned. It's not like we decided to have this personality and, uh, and it's lawful. It's, it's nature, it's cause and effect. And so in our mindfulness practice, we, we can start to have a little more space and humor. And I think that then is, is similar and translates into how we can be real with each other about what comes up for us, you know, get triggered or whatever and allows us to communicate that in more truthful ways and less harmful ways where we're, we're taking responsibility for the condition of our mind. I mean, not that, not that we're completely in control of it, but we understand that uh, what comes up for us is a conditioned um, response due to the particular conditioning of our minds and, um, we don't assume that we have the whole picture. And so we're willing to just be real about the conditioning of our minds, you know, and I think of nonviolent communication as one um, model for how we can practice communicating in this more truthful way um, in nonviolent communication, which I don't, haven't studied a lot, but, um, but one of the basic frameworks is just to sort of, um, Describe sort of in a blow-by-blow way, very similar to, to how we practice perceiving things in with mindfulness practice, like when you did this, when you said this, um, I felt that, and then you can say, because I value this. And so we're really taking responsibility for our own responses, um, reactions, while still being real about, you know, how things unfold. Yeah, and in my experience, uh, yeah, even you know, even if it's embarrassing, but to, but there's a certain freedom in just putting things out there when there's that perspective that you know I may understand even that this is unskillful, that this response that's coming up for me is unskillful, and I I'm not encouraging it, but because you seem interested, I'm sharing this with you, and it's it's a vulnerable thing, and and. Uh, yeah, in a relationship where there's trust to receive that, there can be, yeah, it can actually, and this is, you know, I think the value of therapy and just good friends where we can share the less agreeable aspects of our personalities, just that reflection and that, you know, and, and we do that here in, in our Dharma community where people just share what's real for them. And it's so, I'm sure you've experienced, it's so grounding and uh, freeing to take all that stuff of our minds less personally and see how it isn't personal, how it's, you know, it's, it's just human nature. So that's one that's, <laughs> it's not easy, but, um, but can really, you know, be a cause for, for freedom and for healing, I think. And then another reason we may not, 
tell the truth. And I think this is really common. And um, yeah, one of those things we may not want to see about ourselves, but just how often we bend the truth just in really little ways, probably, but to advantage ourselves, (laughs) to be right or to get out of doing something or just to paint ourselves in a better light. And um, there's research on this cognitive science research on this, just about the bias we have towards ourselves, you know, and uh, like one study I read about, they'll show, they'll have a story of, you know, some disagreement between people and they'll have people imagine themselves the same scenario as, you know, either the so-called victim or the so-called, you know, aggressor or whatever person who made a mistake and just depending on which role you, you take, people had very different perceptions of, of the situation and who is at fault. And um, yeah, it just, uh, just our very deep bias to take our own side, to want to be right. <laughs> this is so basic. We, we may not reflect on it very often, but um, I mean, I know this myself doing this all the time and, you know, it's like mostly it's it's not big things, but just to see how willing my mind is to bend the truth a little, to paint myself in a better picture or to get what I want. It's really humbling. Um, and, you know, and, and in the big scheme, how this plays out, you know, in, in our society. And so definitely something, I think, to be aware of and just to be real with. And, and you know, it's we can we can be real about this tendency to not that to not be real because we may have the idea like I do that I'm a really, I really value truthfulness. And then that idea can even, you know, get in the way in a way or, or be, be something that when we look a little more closely or in, the, in certain situations, we see, Oh, there's, there's more there, more to the story. So I think all, all that can just maybe hopefully just spark some curiosity. And again, it's not about judging or being perfect, but just some curiosity about, about this value of truthfulness and that the Buddha really seemed to, to hold really highly and to, um, yeah, just be curious about, about the ways that we may bend the truth and, and to see what would it be like? What, you know, what, other possibilities, you know, what creativity might we need to call on in, in certain situations where it's like, I want to be truthful, but there's these other factors. I can't divulge all the information. It's not appropriate, um, whatever it might be, or there's a lot going on for me. I don't feel like I can open my mouth without, you know, causing harm, but how can we be truthful, be real? And I feel sometimes like it's really, it comes, you know, the speech is the outward representation or manifestation but it's like i think it starts with our own being and you know in any given moment how connected in tune we are with ourselves and where we're coming from and how comfortable we are with that however it might be even if it's there's unskillfulness present or something but there can be some understanding of this is what's going on this is how the degree to which i understand it and then when we're called about called upon to engage or speak we have then some grounding some relationship with what's going on that we can speak from 
And that I think allows us to keep our hearts open, which I think is the really important thing where we don't have to deceive. We don't have to, we can, and there's such beauty in that and, and release and relief. And I think we feel that when we're around people who are present in that way, real in that way, there's just a sense of really, yeah. And I think this again is really related to just our mindfulness practice of really being in the moment. Yeah. That's really liberating and points the way to freedom where we don't have to pretend we don't have to, um, be in conflict with the way things are, no matter how it is. We can have a relation, a working relationship with reality. So in the time remaining, I'll talk a little bit more about the second aspect of truthfulness and the value of truthfulness, um, which is the truthfulness in our perceptions. And, uh, and again, a lot of <laughs> room for humility here about yeah, just on really fundamental levels, how we misperceive um, and how that causes suffering. And this is really the core of, of the Buddha's teachings is that our suffering comes from misperceptions, comes from misunderstanding and then grasping in ways that cause suffering due to that misunderstanding, that misperception. So there's four, um, there's a list of four misperceptions that are really fundamental. And this, uh, this is called the vipalasas or distortions. And they are, number one, sensing no change in the changing. So perceiving things as permanent, which are actually impermanent. Sensing pleasure in what's suffering, or we could say, Sensing satisfaction, perceiving satisfaction, and what's unsatisfactory. Number three is assuming self where there's no self. And number four is sensing the unlovely as lovely. So these are probably familiar. Um, sometimes the first three are go under the name of the three characteristics. Um, and I think it's useful to think of these as perceptions, ways that we um, perceive reality. And so in that way, they're a bit more fundamental, more basic, more close than just viewpoints. Because if we think about it, if we think about impermanence, anything we might assume is permanent, and then we think about it, logically, we understand um, that it's not. And so there's a limit to how, how much benefit can come just from thinking about these on a conceptual level. Um, and so I think the real liberation, you know, and really what, you know, what keeps us clinging, which is really the point, isn't that we, that it's, it's not a logical thing. It's really, it's a way the the heart is sort of looking for ground and orienting and emotionally attaching to something, you know, as being permanent or like when something isn't going our way, there can be that sense that this is going to last forever. Even though if we thought about it, we know that it isn't. So it's, it's uh, for the, for the first one, for 
sensing no change in the changing. I think it's, it's more about how we tend to just perceive reality and mostly how we tend to perceive reality is in terms of thoughts and concepts and stories, which there's not a lot of change. We don't perceive a lot of change in that. When we think of me, Gabe, there's something that feels pretty solid and lasting there. Or think about, you know, whatever it is, the, you know, other people in our lives, we, we tend to not, you know, think of them as a, a constant change, but oh yeah, they're like this. And I think with all of these, it's, it's important to, to think about them as pragmatic and not so much as metaphysical or, yeah, trying to come to some conclusion about the nature of reality, but really to notice what are the effects of perceiving things as static. This is never going to change. I mean, how often do we have thoughts like that? Even though we know logically it's not true, this is never going to change. It's always going to be like this. I'm always this way. She's always this way. And so it's, yeah, it's more of a, just our habitual. And this is very, this is just how our minds, when they're really oriented around concepts and trying to look for grounding concepts and think of our life as, you know, okay, I have this life now and I want that. And just, just how we organize things with thought. But we're not really, uh, but there's a solidity there that, um, that basically we get caught on and cling to and it causes suffering. Um, and this is something to investigate. Again, so it's about investigating the effect on our heart of these different ways of perceiving, of tuning in, of thinking about reality, of, yeah, what we think of as real, um, how we orient our hearts to this swirl of experience that we, we call life. And so this perception of impermanence or inconstancy is really, in my experience, what really can be liberating about it isn't thinking about, oh yeah, autumn's coming. <laughs> I mean, that can be helpful. And just to notice our attachment to summer and to see that, um, you know, and, and there are reflections on this grosser level, you know, just the fact of aging and death. So there's definitely, you know, on the conceptual level, there definitely is, you know, and just how amazing it is that we can be surprised by old age and death when in some ways it's it's so obvious, but it's something that, that the mind, yeah, doesn't want to think about most of the time. But on a more... Um, direct level yeah the perception of inconstancy moment to moment just the flow of experience of thought emotion mood and what that sense of flow of the mind not being so caught in any particular experience or perception but more attuning to whatever it is that's moving 
that it's moving, that things keep coming and going, that there's pain, there's pleasure, but, but that in a sense, it's not worth clinging to because then we sort of step out of that flow and we miss the heart's opportunity to be resting in a more peaceful relationship to that flow. So that's one way of describing the benefit of that perception. We just keep meeting life as opposed to taking a break to scheme about life. We just, we just stay. We just keep, keep attuning and keep keeping our sensitive hearts open, you know, and to that, to the changing perceptions and, and impacts and impressions. And speaking of the passage of time, I only have four more minutes, so I'll just do a cursory overview of the next three. So the second one is sensing pleasure in suffering. So this uh, this misperception or sensing satisfaction and what's unsatisfactory. And I think this, yeah, this is a very fundamental to just how desire works and how we tend to orient around. Again, they're all interrelated. So how we tend to orient around concepts when we are perceiving them as fixed, not changing, personal, and then there's the idea, oh yeah, that is going to do it. And so that idea of that, whether it's ice cream or whether it's a relationship or whether it's being done with some project or, but that idea of some sense experience and then really grasping that as this is going to really deliver. And this is just, yeah, how desire works and it's very natural. But when we are more honest, um, we see that that attachment, it sort of has expectations that are never quite filled because there are pleasant experiences and they pass, and then we want more. And this isn't to judge experiences, because we all know experiences can be nice and, and, and pleasurable. So it's not a problem or a deficiency in experience. It's more in that hungriness of the mind that is looking for this experience is really going to do it. And then we're disappointed. Um, and so that's the suffering in that misperception is that disappointment and the, and the clinging and the, the building up. And so just that, that orientation of the mind towards, I'm going to get this thing or get rid of this thing. And that's really going to do it as opposed to just reflecting on that clinging itself here in the moment and seeing what kind of freedom might be available here and now, even as, there is this desire, this version. And then the third, assuming self where there's no self. So this one, <laughs> it's so basic. I think it's a rare moment, at least for me, where there's some perspective, just seeing that, seeing that perception, seeing that way of organizing things because it's so habitual. It's, it's just, it's often, we don't usually recognize it because we're so used to it. But I think we, we can have moments where that's less 
the orientation. There's more of a sense of flow, a sense of just things unfolding, just participating in a flow. And there's just less self-centeredness, less, self-con- less self-consciousness, orientation around me at the center. And we can, we can train in this perception, you know, whatever's unfolding, seeing it as nature, even the impulses, the intentions that arise in the mind, and then noticing what the difference between how that feels and how it feels where there's more of this solid sense. Oh yeah, me. What does it feel like when there's a really strong sense of me? You might check out whether there's, whether there's clinging there, whether there's fixedness there, suffering there, or whether there's ever this sense of me that really feels easeful at rest, completely at peace. And that there's me there at the center or whether the moments of peace and ease flow there's there's less of a clear sense of me and what so what that um what those experiences those perceptions feel like and then just a word on the last one sensing the unlovely as lovely and this falls under the um the second one of sensing satisfaction and what's unsatisfactory. Um, but it's presented as, as its own standalone. And I think um, it's traditionally interpreted as having a lot to do with just our tendency to see human bodies as attractive and have that perception and um, the strong clinging and that can arise from that clinging and suffering. And just to understand that that is, a perception that that's and it's genetically conditioned and it's culturally conditioned and it's very superficial. It's like the outward appearance of the body and the mind can latch onto that image. And so there's practices of remembering that, you know, remembering the, the less attractive elements of the body, it's just as a way to balance that. If that's out of balance, you know, that, how attractive is the blood in our veins and the guts in our stomach? And, you know, it's, and, but it's, it's not, it's not to judge the body. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not meant to be, it's just meant to show that it's a conditioned perception and it's, it can be quite habitual, just that superficial perception of the body as attractive, our own body or someone else's and all the energy we put into that and just balancing that. Oh, this is just, a form. So I want to leave it here. So there's um, just to respect everyone's time and, and to leave time for small groups. I see Shannon here. Are you leading the small groups today? Okay. Thank you. So let's just take a, a breath together. Really appreciate everyone's kind attention. Maybe just letting go of the words and resting back into our own experience for a second. So dedicating whatever goodness has come from our time together to the benefit of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering and free from the root causes of suffering. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.